Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Gary Holt from Exodus and formerly from Slayer, and you're listening to The Razor's Edge. What's going on, guys? Tom here from The Razor's Edge, and I'm here with Bobby Blitz Ellsworth from Overkill. How you doing, my friend? Are you well? Hey, Tom. Good to see you, man. Good to be talking here. Audio only, as you said, but yeah, I'm doing well, getting ready for the... uh... Scorching the Earth tour, which is going to start uh, approximately a week in Europe. So we're uh, going in and out of rehearsals at this point. Yeah, so uh, yeah, a little bit uh, worse for wear, but I uh, can't wait to get out on the road again. Yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet. I'm sorry to hit you worse for wear, though, sir, but I'm sure you'd come back kicking ass, like, as always. So um, I mean it in a good ex- way. It's not a bad thing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> um. I just want to go back a little bit first before we get into, obviously, the brand new album. Um, how was your pandemic season? I know it's kind of still a thing, but it's not really as prominent as it was. How have the last few years been for you? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was obviously different. Like, you know, for everybody in every part of the world, uh, you know, I, I don't think anybody anywhere was not affected by it. Maybe any, anywhere in the modern world, anyway. Um, Fucking weird, you know. Got had the opportunity to uh, obviously write the record, which was uh, which was great comfort in an uncomforting time. Um, but you know, I don't think people are paying that much attention to it here. And I was at, I was at a family issue uh, yesterday, and and I and there was this woman, you know, just like spewing coughed out behind us in uh, at this uh, at this place we were at. And I don't think, you know, it, it hit, me, hit me later. I was like, nobody really even cared. You know, at this point, it might have been rude, but nobody really gave a shit. You, you, know, what I, you know what I'm saying? So I, I think it's to uh, to the great degree it's over, uh, especially with regard to the panic. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I can't believe she's doing that, though. It's like, it's, it's done. It doesn't matter. It's fine. It's over now. <laughs> she was trying to hang in. I mean, she was trying to hang. She, you can hear her choking back there, trying to hold it. She couldn't just leave, and eventually she left. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sitting here trying to out her as some kind of a pig. But I, I, I was just using it as an example that it, you know nobody really was like, hey, could you stop that or you know that that type of thing. So I think the majority of that panic is over. You know, we're just kind of back to being normal slobs that we are. You know, without that, you know, without that uh, Peter pandemic ruling the ruling our lives and thoughts. Yes, absolutely. Um, okay, well, let's go back. Let's go back even further. Um, what actually got you into music in the first place? What made you want to be a musician? Oh, I just think it's cool, you know. I mean, we're like most kids, um, you know, you, you find something in my parents' record collection to listen to, you know, when I was prepubescent, and you know, found some Johnny Cash was in there. And I think I think they bought us the Monkees record, which was a, an American band with an English singer, Davy Jones. There was oh God, there was a few Beatles records around. You know, you pick up the tennis racket or the broom and, you know, you air guitar in front of the mirror. And I think that that's really the first, you know, step toward it. But then, you know, very soon thereafter, I was I was buying my own LPs, you know, and I was looking for Alice Cooper or Led Zeppelin or some Black Sabbath. And, and I think that that kind of formulated the metal years in my head or that the early metal years. So um, I think I couple all of that together with the fact that my mother actually did it. She was... Um, she was a singer uh, and toured with Mitch Miller, which is a great big fucking name for big bands over here. Uh, she was a soloist. Um, you know, I mean, it, when she was alive, she sang every day of her life, you know. So it was it was one of those things where singing was very normal in my family. 
you know, nobody was afraid of it, even if you couldn't sing, you know, because it just was normal. It's what your mother did when she was she was cooking dinner, making your bed or, or you know, or, or just uh, enjoying herself. So so I think that the combination of all those things I just mentioned. Oh, wow. As it, so was she like an influence for you as well as obviously Alice Cooper and Zeppelin, et cetera? Well, I think so. And I, and I think, again, it's to that, you know, it's to that point where, you know, being the singer is not necessarily, especially in a hard rock or a heavy metal band. I mean, the big thing at, uh, on the front end when you're a kid is not being Ronnie Dio. You know, it's just being <laughs> not afraid to make a fool of yourself. You know, nobody wants to hear their own voice or many don't want to hear their own voice, you know, but somebody's got to stand up there and fucking do it. So, you know, my I think my feeling was is that, sure, she influenced me uh, by just making it uh, by normalizing it, you know, first and foremost, you know, that if she's doing it, we're doing the same thing. You know, I mean, just, if I heard my mother singing, my sister would join it. You know, that was kind of it was a musical household when it came to melody. And I and I think that, uh, sure, she's an influence. I, I didn't know it back then. But looking back on it, especially with this question, I say, sure. Why the hell not? I mean, it was like I look forward to hearing that voice, you know. Yeah, it's beautiful. I love that. It's incredible. I think that's absolutely incredible. Um, Band-wise, where did the name Overkill actually come from? Well, I remember I remember we were all sitting outside a place in New City, New York, you know, on the car. I don't know if we were drinking warm beer or Coca-Cola. It was back when we were a cover band. And, and you know, we had instituted a bunch of, um, you know, fine selections from the Ace of Spades into our, you know, our... Uh, repertoire back then some scorpions and some riots and motorhead and, and i think it was really a combination of boy what a great name and obviously motorhead together you know it was a it was a combination i can't say that it wasn't motorhead influence because it most certainly was we were big fucking fans of the you know the fab three at that particular time and um you know for, for us it just seemed to fit what we were going after you know once we knew what the definition of overkill meant in the english language we were like this is perfect for us you know you know, yeah. to, to destroy with more force than necessary, you know? And we're like, oh, this actually describes what Thrash was going to be for us later on. So it was kind of a kind of a forethought to, you know, what later became an insight, you might say. But for sure, Motorhead influenced. That's awesome. I, I, it's so great so far. So you mentioned, obviously, um, getting into the Thrash game. What made you want to go into the Thrash? Because obviously there's so many genres to choose from. What made you get on the Thrash road? You know, because it was it was uncharted. You know, you didn't we didn't know we were on the thrash road until it was actually until we were on it already. You know, it was um, nobody sat there and said we're going to be a thrash band. I mean, we liked the new wave of British heavy metal. I mean, you know, like I, I was mentioning the Motorhead songs, but I mean, you know, something great came out of England with Paul Diano, you know, fronting Maiden, and it was that that punkyish kind of Maiden uh, on the front end. We were all big kind of punk heads, you know, and uh, I mean, I grew up back in the, you know, the East Coast scene with, you know, the, the Ramones, when the Ramones were just kind of a local band and the Heartbreakers and the New York Dolls and you know, all that shit. So any kind of punk stuff was, you know, to me was A-OK, as long as it had a little melody and a lot of fucking snot and grit. But the, I think that understanding what Thrash was is understanding it after it actually happened, you know, it was, and that was probably worldwide, it was 1984 when, you know, Metallica released Kill em All. And it, it just, you know, it changed the scope of music. And I don't think everybody grabbed their template. I think that you now realize what template that you were actually working in simultaneously with a band like this, as they did in Essen, Germany, or or Birmingham, or 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 Tokyo, or, or Los Angeles, San Francisco, what the fuck ever. But we're all doing it simultaneously without 
you know, without the benefit of uh, the World Wide Web. And pretty soon thereafter, we're, we're a thrash band. So we didn't know. And, and again, it's just insight into the future. It has nothing to do with, you know, being groundbreaking. It just happens to be in the right spot at the right time. Add, you know, two parts heavy metal, one part punk, uh, a shitty attitude, and too much, uh, too much uh, cold beer, you get thrash. <laughs> oh, beautiful. You've, it's it's like, you, like... know, you know, when people do interviews with me, it's not like, you know, I never, I never preface it with, you know, I'm not going to be an asshole. <laughs> um, so you're like literally, other than obviously your basis, the only founding member left in Overkill, and you've been going for a fucking long ass time. I think I think that just goes to show the rate of your success in a way that the chemistry etc that you have and the love that you have for the music and what you do because you're still here 40 years later smashing it out the park you know on a yearly basis with your 20th record coming out <laughs> insane it's absolutely mental what do you attribute it to I mean I really don't know I mean it's obviously a good relationship with Didi and myself there's many other bands there that you know you can say have done similar or had similar success or varying degrees of that success um more less same uh, but i think um you know for me i just you know i always loved it and I, you know i i kind of found that you know I, I was not the long-sided guy who said okay we're going to be here for 20 records i was like okay make the best out of the second one because it might be the last one you know and i'm still have that attitude when it comes to the 20th record and i and i think that for my own um personal positive movement in this scene or, or just in my career, if, if I'm always trying to up the bar, it still stays interesting to me. You know, um, it, it's a love of the music, but I, I aspire to be that singer like my mother. You know what I mean? Where you can you can capture an audience instantaneously, even if they were your, weren't your children, you know? Um, so so I think that, you know, the, the relationship with Didi and I is a huge part of our success. And, you know, his wife had brought it up to me that, you know, it's it's because you guys are brought up the same way. You know, you put your families first. You treat each other like you're part of that family. Um, if that's the case, all things take care of themselves after the fact. You know, so if we have the same upbringing, it's kind of easy to understand each other. And that leads to kind of the time that we spend yielding positive results musically. You know, I mean, it's, you know, if you're sitting here complaining about who's the most fucking important person in the band, who gives a flying fuck? You know, I mean, you, you can put all those fucking guys in a room. They could all be virtuosos. You come out with a pile of shit and fucking, you know, egotistic. You, you know what I'm saying? I, I'm offering. Yeah. This is, you know, this is, a, you know, just quite simply um, good teamwork. And I, and I think that that's why um, I think that that's why we succeed, at least at least for 20 records anyway, why we succeed. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Um, Lyrics-wise, are they... Obviously, you obviously write them, I take it, yeah? Are they yes. very personal to you, or are they story-based, or are they political? Like, what exactly do you base your lyrics around? Well, I mean, I have a pool of things I go to. You know, I mean, once it was a thrash band, I mean, I kind of understood where it was going. You know, the the early lyrics, I was in a university in, in New York City, and... and um, you know, I mean, I was I was taking what's called a liberal arts de degree. I was going for that, which means that you don't know what you want to fucking be. You know, that's really all it means. It's like I'm in college. I don't got to work. You know what I mean? All I got to do is hold down a job over the summer to get enough fucking beer money for the rest of the fucking nine months of the year. <laughs> so, I mean, I, you know, I was throwing Shakespeare in there. And, 
courses I was taking, I was taking English literature and I think there's a little King Lear in the first record and, you know, et cetera, some Latin in there. Um, I was also, I was also brought up Catholic, um, which I know is a dirty word today, but I really don't give a fuck what people think about me. But the point being is I went to Catholic school and had a Catholic education. Um, so there was a lot of that I used in it too, because I knew this stuff. I mean, I always, it was really easy for me to write about the struggle between good and evil because it was part of my education. You know, if I was paying attention one out of fucking five days a week, I was going to get something with a good and evil kind of a struggle. So that was easy for me to, uh, to put into word. So from there, I take from that pool and start adding the current day. And, I, and I've always said, you know, what I do between records is I, I make a list of all my sins and I fucking confess them on the, the next record, which helps me become a better man, cleans my soul a little bit. So I take from the pool, confess my sins, and then can kind of move forward from that point. You know, it might be unusual. It might be the, not the thing that is so unheavy metal. But, you know, if I really gave a shit, I never would have told you. <laughs> if you see my point. <laughs> I can't believe this fucking Catholics out there writing about this. Well, it makes me a better person. And I think that that's, you know, to some degree what the journey in life is, you know, not to, to, to say it's all over someday and, and nobody understood my fucking genius. I really don't care. I mean, I care that I, I make it a little better before I leave here. And that's, uh, that's the most important thing to me. So, so that type of lyrical content or lyrical forward movement for me has always given me that opportunity. Awesome. Mate. It's almost like all the fans of the priest sort of thing. Like you're confessing to everybody out there being like, here we go. I'm going to cleanse myself all. This is everything I've achieved. Enjoy, basically. It's, well, it's, you know, hey, listen, you can only get better if you admit the wrongs to yourself. You know what I mean? And if I do it outwardly, and I'm not saying for God's sake, I do these awful fucking things. But sometimes to me, it's just it's just easier to if I'm trying to correct myself on something. And I don't I'm not like a practicing Catholic at this point. You know, I'm not like the guys going to church on Sundays or anything, but it was a huge part of my upbringing. And and I think that. It stayed with me. So the the point is that somewhere in there, regardless of what people agree with or what they disagree with, there was some good in that uh, with regard to how I lived my life as an adult, you know, and and um, yeah. And I think sometimes, you know, admitting something is a first step to correcting it. I mean, otherwise, you know, otherwise you just live in that whole denial. thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so here we are then. The 20th record is coming out on Friday the 14th of April. Scorched. Are you excited for it to come out? Excited for its release? I am excited. I mean, you know, it's I you know, it's not the same excitement when you know you you know you did your first record after playing, you know, the air guitar in front of the mirror to, to Johnny Cash songs, you know, 10 years later or something. But it's it's a huge amount of excitement because I think it contains something different, you know. I think it it's Oh God, I can't say it's back to basics because it's there's so many different characteristics on this record, you know? It's that shit like I mentioned earlier, you know, I was playing I was playing air guitar to some Black Sabbath songs, you know, or Alice Cooper's. And I think that this fucking record contains rock and roll and, and some doomy elements in it. Um so I think that the, the excitement lends itself to look at all the shit that we've collected on this fucking journey. You know what I mean? We're not just the thrash band, we're we're a heavy metal band. We're a rock and roll band. We're a blues band. We're, you know, sure. You put it all together. You put our, you run it through our fucking meat grinder. It comes out the other end as overkill. 
which is a thrash band. But the point is, is that those influences exist. And I think that that's where the excitement comes from, that that kind of diversity. Yeah, there's some absolutely filthy riffs and bass lines in there. Like, and I was in, I was listening to it earlier, just like, this is incredible. I've I've never had the privilege of listening to you guys ever before. So to be open to that sort of world, I was like, oh my God, it just straight from the up. I was like, this is like in a good way, obviously. It's like just disgusting riffage straight away. Like it sets you up beautifully for the rest of the album, I think. Oh, I mean, it, it's it's dirty as fuck. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it, it's like, I mean, it's just got a fucking stink to it. And I and I think that, you know, there, there, there's something to attribute the success of 20 records to not being afraid of doing something like that. You know, to to say, hey, we were influenced by that early Maiden, and we were influenced by that early Sabbath, and we 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 are a thrash band. All that shit's on there, and it's you know, it's all in different spots throughout the record. I mean, I man, there's a there's a riff on there. It's got to be one of the dirtiest riffs we ever did. It's um, it's the fifth fifth number called Wicked Place, and it is just this fucking blues ride. On did you did you see Breaking Bad? Um. It, it it was a it was a, a series here about uh, a col- a high school professor making methamphetamine. Yeah. Okay. You saw it. Okay. So it, it's like Wicked Place is kind of like it's kind of like that old blues riff on the blue meth that Walter White was making. <laughs> it's, like, it's not like it's just it's it's just hitting and hitting and hitting and hitting. And I'm thinking it's a fucking blues song. It's it's something I was singing in the seventies. You know what I mean? In my house, in the shower somewhere, I was I heard this riff somewhere before, and Didi came up with it, and I was like, man, there's, this fucking record is everywhere. But the key is putting that overkill stamp on it at the end of the day, putting it through that meat grinder and making it our own. So I'm really I'm really excited about the whole thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I would be after hearing it, so I'm excited for everybody to, uh, to, to enjoy this one. Um, well, you mentioned Wicked Place, and obviously The Surge as well, the two singles that you've already released. Uh, as like a little teaser, have they been well received as well? Yeah, I I mean, the surgeon was the first one, and I think that you know that's more the template that we've been playing on as a thrash band for years. Now, it's obviously the parameters have been pushed to the left and to the right, and up and down because it's it's been modernized from you know the the eighties, you know, so it's not the same as the eighties. It's you know it's thrash a la twenty three. Um, so you know the idea of releasing that song first. Um, as a single was to say, okay, the pandemic knocked a lot of people back, knocked them down. And we lost some people, obviously. Um, but you know, some shit, some shit remains the same in all this fucking craziness. If you're looking for something to depend on press play, you know, that was kind of the thinking behind that, you know, to not go as far out to the avant-garde, um, type influences of, of wicked place first, but to say, okay, there's normality among the abnormality. There's sanity amongst the insanity. So that was uh, that was received really well. And then the contrast of Wicked Place being the second one, um, I think was just a fucking beautiful setup that it was just, you know, you got your thrash, you got your fucking heavy, you know, blues, Sabbath-esque kind of blues. And it's, uh, so it's, um, you know, it's two ends of the spectrum for those both releases. Yeah, which gives people a bit of a taste, like you say, of one end and then in the other. It's like, oh, this is quite interesting to know what else, what else is on there. I mean, I really enjoyed Won't Be Coming Back, Part of Their Fallen Bag of Bones. I thought they were absolute bangers, all three of them, incredible. So, what, and what was the middle one? You said Won't Be Coming Back? Hard of They Fall. Okay. 
and bag of bones. All bangers, yeah. All bangers. A um, little bit different than than normal. I think won't be coming back. It's got that heavy metal I was talking about earlier. Yeah. And there's something kind of, um, I don't know. There's something kind of Judas Priest esque on that song. It just, it you know, you can't say it's a hundred percent influenced by it, but it just kind of it leaks into it. Um, I don't know if it's the phrasing in the vocals or the way the riff and the vocals play off of each other, but there's something priest-esque on it, which I'm, I'm really happy about. And, and Bag of Bones was, you know, my, my partner Didi has always mocked, you know, mock titled his riffs. And, and this was mock titled last one. And I immediately thought it's because it was the last riff he had written. And uh, I said, no, no, this one is because it's the most different than everything else. And it should sit by itself somewhere. So it's got a really kind of, you can't say it's modern. You can't say it's kind of metalcore, but there's a little of that hardcore thump and um, and beat to it. But it, the groove is thick as, you know, and it's just kind of a fun way to end the record. Because, you know, we were talking about the journey earlier. The whole thing is lyrically is about the journey. I've gone from the east. I've gone from the west. I'm over here. You know, he goes, hey, boy, you want another taste? You know, that's <laughs> Because I've been chasing, you know, chasing this drug since the fucking 80s, you know. So that's all I wrote about was that, you know, that end of things. And um, to me, it's one of the more outstanding uh, tracks on the record based on its difference uh, to where it stands next to uh, what precedes it. Yeah, it's it's definitely got that 80s theme still to it, though. It's definitely, it, it feels like we're still there, but we're kind of not. Like I said, it's like Allah 23 now. Um, but it's definitely got the 80s vibe to it, I think, as well, uh, with like the structure of it and everything. Well, I mean, Tom, that's it. I mean, it's a good pickup breakdown to even production. I mean, you know, we chose Colin Richardson and Chris Clancy to mix this record. A couple of fine English gentlemen. But the uh, the point is we picked Colin because we, he does good records. It's just that simple. And this is his fourth experience with us. Um, three mixing and one full production, you know, soup to nuts, start to finish. But... You know, he started mixing it, and I think the only guidance we gave him was, we don't want it so compressed that it makes your ears tired. We want it that some somebody can listen to this on 10 if they want to and go from the front to the back. They, they can do 51 minutes without taking a break. And he did that. And, and as he was doing it, he started picking up the fact that it came from another era. It came from that blues era of the 70s. It came from a little bit of the 90s. And... He mixed this modern drum sound with a, a a room resonance on the drums that lent itself to a little bit more of an older feel and then started making the guitars match that too. So the cool thing in in my estimation of this is that it's almost like listening to two eras simultaneously. It's like listening to Thrash a la 23, but knowing that it came from somewhere else simultaneously and one listen, you're hearing two eras. So I think that's kind of cool that it's... Uh, that it's kind of, uh, I don't know, time travels, you know, a time traveling type uh, situation with the production. Yes, I absolutely agree with you. Um, this is going to be a tough one since you've got 20 records. What sets this album apart from everything else you've already done? I, You know, when everybody asks me that, I always say, I, I'm going to give you the standard answer. This is the best fucking record since they started putting beer in cans. <laughs> I mean, I think the diversity, but we've always had that diversity to some degree in the past. But, you know, it's so hard to rate the record. I'm excited because, you know, I'm into it up to my eyeballs at this point. You know, I mean, I I just finished writing it as of 
my end of it is of last December when Colin started mixing it, you know? And so, I mean, I, I can't see the forest because of all the trees, you know? So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a simple kind of a, I could let you know in a year where it stands, you know? I mean, there, there's records that have stood the test of time for me that I could still listen to and still feel that moment of excitement this many years later. The first record, obviously, because we were just, it's just youthful chaos, you know, uh, a record called Years of Decay, Horoscope, uh, Ironbound. These are records that we've done over that 20 that have stood that test of time, that have lasted more than that year of excitement um, for me. And I, and I think that that's kind of, I think that's the only fair way it can be about yourself to critique yourself and say let me give it a little time see where you know see where it stands in a year so okay i'll come back to you then i'll come back to you then <laughs> talk to you in a year. <laughs> <laughs> so at the beginning of this obviously you mentioned you got on a european tour next week now with 20 records writing a set list must be horrific yeah i you know i was i was talking to you know, one of the guys say, maybe we should just do an evening with, you know, because then we could do, we could do like an hour set and then we do another hour and we still can't cover half the, you know, how much material could you cover? I mean, if you do two hours, you're only doing two records, really, if you think about it, you know? Yeah. So the, um, the set list will contain some of what's called the classic stuff. Um, now, these are obviously videos or, you know, over the years that, that people have latched onto. It was their first experience with us. You know, from years ago, or even even fairly newer videos. You know, these are you know those they become a kind of a classic or an iconic tune, so that they have to stay. And that's usually twenty five percent of the set, uh, maybe maybe a little bit more. And then we try to put twenty five percent in of kind of hidden stuff because there's so much shit. You know that maybe we should do some stuff we haven't played, or maybe we should do some stuff we haven't played in two decades. You know, it'll appear new and it'll be absolutely new to some of the newer you know, headbangers that uh, have picked up on us since, say, 2010. So that's another 25 or 30%. But we got to do the new songs. I mean, that's always, it's it's always the important thing to me. It's a, I, I never cared about what I was. I always cared about what I am. You know, you know what I mean? You only know where you're going if you know what you are. But the point is, is you don't want to live in what you are. You want to live in, you know, or what you've been. You want to live in the in the current day. And that's the feeling of danger is doing the new songs. And that's part of this attraction is that dangerous feel. So there's got to be four new songs in, in this whole thing. And there's another 25% coming right there. You know, and the next thing you know, we're down to just a few percentile left. And, you know, I don't really care at that point. I, I talk to the other guys, say, put in whatever the hell you want. You know what, you know what I mean? It's just, so, so I'm only good for 75% of it. And then I just kind of pass the obligation off to somebody else. <laughs> I'm going to get a sandwich. <laughs> I'll see you in an hour. Let me know. Let me know what you decided. <laughs> Fantastic. You were uh, pl- not an asshole, but you know. <laughs> um, you're also playing Manifest in Toaster uh, on the 28th to 26th to 28th of May, I think it is here in the UK. Which so uh, looking forward to that. Of course. I mean, I always like coming to the UK. It's always a big, you know, it's a big, it's a big deal. I I, I think the first time I was there was a the second tour, um, 87. We, we were opening for a band called Halloween and, you know, they were on some magic carpet ride back then. And, you know, they did the Hammersmith Odeon, you know, it was like, fuck, man, you know, it, it's, it's that thing in your head, you know, where, you know, being a musician from the records that were done there, from the iconic bands that are played there, 
And that was my introduction to the UK was a Hammersmith Odeon. I mean, it's no better introduction, if you know what I'm saying. And uh, it's always been a it's always been a great ride for us going through the UK. Obviously, shit's changed a little bit, I think, with uh, the politics of the fucking day. You know, no. it's not as easy to get in there with, you know, with all the, the visa requirements and work visas, et cetera, and new taxes and, uh, you know, that whole kind of a thing. But that aside, uh, musically, you know, probably probably one of the greatest, you know, not just countries, but, uh, yeah, conglomerate of countries that uh, that make up a fantastic offering of music for anybody, you know, from my era. You know, I mean, I've been listening to that shit forever. I'm actually recording stuff with, with a couple of guys where we're, we're messing around with old English covers, you know, at this point. You know, the shit that we, that we did um, as kids, you know, stuff from the 1970s. So... Listen, I mean, if that's a testimony to how I feel about the UK, that's uh, that, you know, I don't think you get any better than that. So, absolutely. Thank you very much. Massive respect. <laughs> um, is this is that a different feel with festivals compared to shut to gigs, though? Because obviously, festivals being outside, way bigger, that sort of thing. Do you feel like you put more of it, more into it because it's a festival, or is it still that you're going to get the same regardless? You know, festivals are, are, are they're kind of like the unknown. You can do them forever and every festival stage is different and it, because it always depends on the weather and it depends how the wind's blowing, what you're going to hear. I mean, wind actually moves sound. I mean, if you've been at festivals, you realize this. You're like, how, why did the sound get better? Well, the fucking wind stopped. Yeah, that's why the sound got better. But the band feels that all the time. So you're in a, you know, you're, you're in a, at our level anyway, you're in a great period of unknown. You know, for for that hour you're out there because you're using other people's shit in other and other persons or in other configuration and a different world. So I personally rather do headline shows because it's our world. And, you know, we can, you know, all the variables that are necessary to be tweaked, we can tweak during the day. In a festival, you throw when you go. It's just that simple. You know, you get up there, you got to you got to, you know, hope for the best kind of a thing. You know, <laughs> Please God, if this festival comes off good, I swear to God, I'll never kick the dog, and you won't find me drunk on a Sunday morning again. Amen. <laughs> is there is there a, is there a plan for a UK tour? Uh, it'll come in later. I mean, you know, this is a this is right now because of the you know the post pandemic stuff. We're looking to do the most economically feasible tour that's possible. And that's why we chose the, uh, with our, with our agent, obviously uh, the territories that we're doing, this is where we're, it's economically feasible for us to make it and really hope that things kind of turn for that second tier of music to be able to tour everywhere else again. You know, it doesn't mean we're not going to tour. We're doing the States after the, you know, after, after Europe, um, of course, we're going to look into the UK, but you can do a UK tour on its own. You know, you can go over, you know, whatever. You can go over to Ireland. You can go to Northern Ireland. You can go, uh, you can do England. You can do something in Wales, um, et cetera. And you can put together 15 to 20 shows just in the UK. So it's possible for us to just go over and do that. And we have somebody checking into it now. Ah, fantastic. I'll be uh, I'll be keeping my eyes peeled. Don't you worry about that. Um, finally, before I let you get out of here, um, I'm always intrigued when I speak to musicians about this because... Music videos used to be huge back in the day. Not so much now. I still think they're good because people want a lot of people watch YouTube and that sort of thing. But 
making the making them, writing the storyboards from all that sort of stuff. Music videos. Do you love them or hate them? I'm not a big fan. I'm I'm not a, I'm not a big fan. I I I I don't like being. You know, I I mean, my partner's artistic. He has a he has a he has an eye for things. Um, he has a brain for art outside of music. Um, so I think that with that on our side, we get better results than just the norm of handing it over to a dude. You know, saying, "Oh, hey, listen, we need to do a video," and he comes up with the idea and the storyboard. Um, so I I think that we're a little ahead of the game with that. But on a personal, the personal note is I'd just rather not. I just I don't think that they're I don't know. I don't think they ingratiate you to anyone. I think that whole visual to me takes away from what the song itself is doing. You, you know what I, you know what I mean? It's somebody yeah. else's, again, somebody else's idea of how you should be presented. No matter, even if you come up with the idea, they're still the ones that are doing the editing, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not saying that they're untalented people. They're very talented people. And, but I, I think videos are so hit and miss. I mean, all the videos we've done over these years, if there's if there's twenty five or thirty videos to a record almost from from like the nineties, fuck, I don't know. Maybe maybe there's there's five or six I say are great videos, you know. But that's yeah. that's just me. The other guys would say, oh, they're all great. Or you know, when somebody who follows the band goes, you're crazy. What are you talking about? You know, it's great to see the band perform. So I understand their value. But when it comes down to me personally, I just don't like looking at videos. I don't even look at other bands' videos. I could care less. I, I'll hear the song. I love listening to the song. Yeah, well, that's the beauty of streaming and stuff now with Spotify, because obviously you don't have to watch them anymore. And that's why I think they died off, because a lot of people just would rather listen and then go and do something else at the same time, rather than no one really sits there and just watches music. I mean, I as a kid, I used to watch them all the time, like every day, nonstop, religiously. But now, not so much. I, yeah, I think I think you're probably you know it was a different era back then too. Besides, yeah. you're a kid. I mean, you you morph into something else eventually. And I I think I probably was the same way. You know, I was MTV came about as I was you know in my twenties. That's when video killed the radio star. You know, and it was you know it was an unbelievable you know phenomenon. You know. Um, to be able to to visualize what you were were hearing, but I think that eventually I got tired of visualizing what I was hearing because it took away half the fun for me. Because you know, half the fun is is finding out or or deciphering what a song means to me when I'm listening to it. And I hate when somebody comes in later on and starts saying, "Oh no, the lyrics mean this and this and this," and I'm like, "Oh fuck, I'll never listen to that again." You know, so yeah, for three decades I thought it was exactly the opposite. <laughs> so I don't need the visual to help me. So it's it's my probably my little fantasy end of doing it is that I like to uh, you know I like to make up my mind about a song instead of have my mind be made up for me. Yeah, no, absolutely, Bobby, man, this has been so much fun. I've absolutely loved talking to you. Obviously, the brand new album Scorch is out Friday the fourteenth of April. So make sure you're streaming it, listening to it, blasting it, turn it up to. 50,000, not 11. Get it right up. Like, I mean, go hell for leather. Um, and I wish you all the best for the tour, man, and with the new album coming out in a couple of weeks. I got, I got one thing to add here, right? I mean, we just did the interview, so you got to feel what kind of person I am. April 14th is when we release this record, right? Yep. We may not be the biggest in the world, but we'll fight anybody because the big boys are releasing on the 14th, too. We said, bring it on, motherfucker. <laughs>
you, San Francisco. We're going to fucking hit. It's a Metallica release, too. So the point, <laughs> the point yeah. is, the point is, is I, um, I was actually, I thought about it. And I was like, oh, this is actually pretty exciting. <laughs> because we're actually going to be compared to the biggest heavy metal thrash band that's ever existed because we're releasing on the same day. So when anybody ever asks me, or even if they don't, I throw my two cents and say, we're not afraid of those fucks. <laughs> I'd, lo- I'd love to see that take on Hetfield. That'd be incredible. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby, my friend, thank you so much. This has been absolutely incredible. And like I say, I wish you all the best with the record. I wish you all the best with the tour. And hopefully I'll see you down the line. Thank you, Tom. It was a good time, my friend. Thanks for listening. Make sure you keep up to date with future episodes by subscribing to our channels. For more information on this podcast, or for all the latest music news, reviews, interviews and more, head over to our website, www.therazorsedge.rocks.